good to see you guys. Uh, man and I were away last week. And I just want to say, when we're away, we miss you guys. I mean, really and sincerely, we just miss our church family. Uh, last week, I'm really thankful. That's uh, an ironic way to put that. I'm really thankful for Ryan's teaching last week on thankfulness. Wasn't that helpful to you? Man, I, I of course, caught that after the fact online and just was really blessed by it, challenged by it, to think about what does it mean to be a, a man who is thankful for what God has done. And so to bring that in my life with intentionality, I was really thankful for that. We got to be away. A friend of ours was in Reading uh, preaching on racial reconciliation. And so, you know, we, we don't often get to connect with our friends from Texas and they were there doing that. So we connected over there last week and got to do that. And it was really a rich blessing. But we do, we miss you guys when we're not with you. We miss our church family. There's something sweet about having a home church, isn't there? And just, they're your people, you know, and you miss when you're not with them. So we missed you guys. Let me say, as we launch into today's sermon, we are continuing in our series on deep lives. And now, you know, I think we are probably far enough into the sermon uh, series, into the series, where I, I want to share with you my concern about the series as we're talking about all these different character traits that we want to see developed in our lives. And my concern is this. My concern is that we would forget in all of our efforts to become thankful and faithful and persevering and all these good things, that we might forget that those are all works of the Spirit. They're all fruit of the Spirit, right? Y- y'all know that. There's something that this Holy Spirit brings into our life when we come into a relationship with Christ. He imparts his spirit to us. And then because that spirit lives and resides in us, it produces these things in us. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't make real intentional effort to move forward in all of these character traits. But it does mean that if we make those efforts apart from the founding work of the spirit, apart from the spirit's work in us, uh, and apart from experiences of the spirit's movement, that we will come up empty. And I just, I want to remind us of that lest this whole series become an exercise in moralism, right? Become an exercise in just us trying to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and saying, I can be a better person if I just work hard enough at it. I'd be really disappointed if that's what we drew from this series. Um, We need the work of the Spirit. And as your pastor, I wanna encourage you, especially during a series like this one, to pay special attention to cultivating your relationship with God's Spirit. There's a couple things I think you need for that. I'll share with you a story from my own life. When I was late teens, uh, early 20s, I was sort of getting my toe in the water of what ministry looked like and starting to discern my call to be a pastor. Now, at that point, I didn't know what God wanted me to do, uh, but I was beginning to sense that it might be this pastoral work. And I was with a group of students. We were on a retreat or a summer camp, and as, as often happens in those environments, God was just really breaking through and God's spirit was doing some work in the lives of our students. And I remember at the end of one of our times of worship, we had some students that were just at the altar praying. I mean, we just kind of had an altar at the, at the front of the church where we were worshiping. And they'd come forward and were praying. And I was standing at the back and just kind of watching and praying for them. And I remember that God's spirit descended in that moment on me in a way that was unique to what I had experienced up to that point. And it still is one of those moments that I go back to. If you've had experiences with God's spirit uh, coming in and and doing a powerful work in a specific moment, if you've had that, you remember those as really anchor points to your walk with the Lord, don't you? You remember them as these moments where God did something and you know you're never gonna be the same uh, from the time that he did that. And you know, I wanna encourage us that those are pivotal moments. I would be, I would be uh, impoverished as a minister of the gospel if this moment hadn't happened. I remember two distinct things God, God's spirit did in that moment. Number one, he caused me to look at those students and recognize that I had been trying to impart truth to them in my own strength. And he said, you're gonna have to come to the end of yourself if you wanna make any impact for me in this world. You're gonna have to be done with you and you're gonna have to be filled with me. I remember that. 
He gave me a visual picture in my mind like of me hanging at the end of my rope and literally going, you have no more rope left. You're gonna have to be done with you. And the second thing he showed me was that what they need, right, you're gonna have to come to the end of yourself and related to that, what they, what they need is me. You don't have what they need in and of yourself. Now, those may sound like no-duh sorts of things, right? But sometimes the simplest things, when they're imparted by the Spirit in a, in a powerful movement of the Spirit into our hearts and minds in a specific moment because he chooses to do it, they land with such force that they're like new truths to us. It's like, it's like they hit us in a way that I've never heard that before, even though those things were not uncommon truths to have been spoken into my life. At that moment, the Spirit solidified those things in a way that has shaped everything that I've done since then. So I want to encourage you, church, as your pastor, as we're talking about character traits that we need to possess, to not make the foolish mistake, and I hope we won't lead you in this way, to think that your efforts will be enough to get you those character traits but that you need to ask God's spirit to move. Now, I think that there are at least three things that you need in order to experience a powerful work of the spirit in your heart. (coughs) Number one is you need to be anchored in God's word and you need to know what it says about the Holy Spirit's work because the word of God both defines the spirit's work and anchors the spirit's work. It shows us what is and what isn't of God's spirit. The second thing that you need is an expectation that God's spirit is at work everywhere all the time. That everywhere you go, when you walk into work tomorrow, when you leave this place and head home, the Holy Spirit goes before you. The Holy Spirit prepares the way for you. The Holy Spirit is speaking all the time. And it's not until we have an expectation that he is speaking and is moving that we begin to look for it. And sometimes when we don't look for it, we miss it. And so that expectation is necessary. And I think the third thing along with that is a willingness to be courageous, to expect that the Spirit is going to shake up some of your normal patterns. That the Spirit, when the Spirit moves, He doesn't typically move and say things to you in poignant ways just to leave you the way that you were. And often it takes courage because you're going to have to change things that others expect of you or think about how you operate. You're gonna have to change and surrender to the Spirit's work in those things. So you need an expectation, you need to be anchored in God's word, and you need courage to follow the Spirit where he leads because it's often not easy. When the Spirit does a work, things change, and it's uncomfortable. Can I just say that? Often it is uncomfortable, but can I also say that when you ask the Spirit to come and do those things and he glorifies Jesus and puts him at the center of your affections, it's so worthwhile. It's so worthwhile. Now, you and I aren't in charge of the Spirit's work. We can't manufacture it. We can't make it happen. Uh, But we can live life in a posture that says we are looking with expectation for your Spirit to move. And I want that for us. I want that for you uh, more than I want you to moralistically pursue a bunch of good character traits in your life. Because anybody can do that. Anybody can try and become a person who perseveres. Anybody can try and become a faithful person. In fact, most people do try to pursue those character traits. It's when those traits are produced by the Spirit of God with whom we have a living, breathing relationship that they take on a whole different manifestation than they take on when they're produced by our own moral efforts. You with me, church? That's my hope for us in this series. Now, 
I've committed the cardinal sin in preaching or one of the cardinal sins. My introduction has nothing to do with the rest of the sermon. <clears throat> that's, like, that's like preaching 101 in seminary. So if my prof was here, he'd be, nope. But sometimes you gotta be preacher, sometimes you gotta be pastor before you're preacher, if you get what I mean by that, you know? So uh, turn with me to Philippians chapter three and let's move forward then. Today what we're gonna talk about, this character trait, is Christ-centeredness. Christ-centeredness. We've talked about thankfulness and perseverance and faithfulness. What I wanna talk about today is what it means to be a person who lives with Christ at the center of their life. Now, let me give you a two-part definition. Here's kind of the big idea, okay? The thing that we're gonna try and chase down today as we examine God's word, it's this. It's that Christ is the only center to life that can create a cohesive framework for your life. In other words, he's the only center that can actually do what a center to life needs to do. And we have to learn how to both put him at the center and then how to live out the implications of his centrality in the rest of our lives. We have to learn how Christ at the center then affects as a framework the way we see everything else in life, the way we think about our work, the way we think about our emotional status, the way we think about our relationships, every aspect of life. And my, my notion is this, is that most of us get the idea of Christ at the center on the throne of life, but the real difficulty comes in then drawing a straight line from Christ at the center to Christ at the center informing how I do my work. Christ at the center informing how I do my parenting. Christ at the center informing how I think about cultural trends of the day and of the age, being able to draw a straight line. In other words, I see a lot of followers of Jesus, <coughs> pardon me, a lot of followers of Jesus who, who lay claim and have great affection for Christ and yet make choices and embrace worldviews that clearly are not derivative of Christ at the center. There is a disconnect between the centrality of Christ in general and then the manifestation of that centrality in, in our engagement with our everyday lives. And we, we, either because we don't fully give deep thought to what this centrality of Christ means for this way I do my work, or because there is great challenge in getting this downstream to this. You with me? That, that's, my, that's my assumption or my notion that comes from a lot of conversation. So that's what we're gonna try and get at today. And we're gonna do this over the next two weeks. I wanna talk about being Christ-centered this week and next week, because we're going to dive into, we're going to start in Philippians 3, but then we're going, to, we're going to be in the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus gives us seven, what he calls seven I am statements, uh, where he says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. You familiar with some of these? You heard some of these, right? I am the door to the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I want you to see in Jesus's words why he is the perfect center to life. And I want to try and compare that to some of the other things that we're tempted to make the center of our lives or perhaps others may be tempted to make the center of their lives and show the shortcomings that those things possess and then how Christ is the perfect center. So that's what I want us to, to pursue over these next two weeks. So we're gonna make our way through as many as we can get through today and then we'll pick up where we leave off uh, next week in those seven I am statements. But let's start with this. 
What does it mean to be Christ-centered? That's the first question we've got to answer because that's kind of a, a, a nice idea. And I touched on a two-part definition that I want to give you for what it means to be Christ-centered. So here's the two parts, and then I'll unpack each part. Part number one of what it means to be Christ-centered. It means valuing your relationship with Christ above all things. Valuing your relationship with Christ above all things. If you picked up the sermon notes, it's listed in there. There's a little fill in the blank you can use to remind yourself. The second part, it means seeing and living out the implications of this relationship in every area of life. Just what I was talking about, the upstream, downstream idea. Christ at the center, traced out through every aspect of my life. So those are really the two parts. It's not complicated. It's pretty simple. Relationship with Christ, first and most important thing, valuing that above all else. And and then secondly, tracing out the implications of that relationship into every other area of our life. Now, let me point something out. When I say Christ-centeredness, and I point out that the first thing is valuing your relationship with Christ above all other things, when I say that, I want to highlight the word relationship in that sentence. Because I'm not saying just put Christ generally as, as God at the center of your life. That's a nice notion, but it doesn't give us much traction uh, in terms of what does that actually mean. What I'm telling you, what I'm offering to you, is that it's your relationship with Christ which must be the first priority of your life. In other words, for instance, there's a thousand ways this takes shape, but, but the guiding question as it relates to anything I encounter in my life becomes how will this affect my relationship with Jesus? Will it cause me to love him more, cherish him more, see him more clearly, or will it distract from him? Will it cause me to see and cherish something other than him? Does it compete with him, or does it support and and bring deeper depth to my relationship with Christ? That's a guiding question. Now that affects everything, even down to the way we approach our devotional lives, right? So one of the things we encourage you to do all the time is to get out your Bible and and be reading it every morning, right? To have a systematic plan for studying God's word and for praying every morning when you rise in the morning that the first priority of your day is to go and to be with God in prayer and in his word. And when we talk about that, one of the things that I often find is in my own way, it can become sort of, that's my ritual. That's what I do. I wake up, I go to the, I go, we have a room upstairs. There's a specific spot. I go to it, I open up my Bible. I've got a guide for how to pray for all the countries of the world. I open that up and I begin to read my Bible and I read my prayer guide. And then I can just launch right into, okay, right now I'm praying for Indonesia. Let's pray for Indonesia. What's going on there? And how do we pray for that? What are the needs of the people in my life group? And what do we need at the church, Lord? And let's begin to pray about that. One of the things that God is teaching me to do is to stop and to pause in those moments of my devotional life and to say, before I do anything else, before I even read a shred of scripture, is to say, Jesus, I am here to know you better. That is my ultimate ambition in this time. I, this is not about me learning information from the Bible. That's good. This is not about me praying for the world. This is not about me praying for friends and family. It's not even about me just getting a word from you about whatever it is I need to hear a word from you about. The sole ambition of this time is to have an experience of your presence so that I might know you and cherish you. I might love you most. That's it. It's simple. It's not complex, right? But it reframes the whole way I approach my devotions. It reframes everything about the next moments that happen and the way I read the scriptures and the way I study them and the way I make note in my journal as I'm doing that and the way I then pray for the nations and It shapes 
all else, if you say, this is really what I'm trying to do in this moment. I want, I just, I want to know you. So, if that's the first thing, it means to value your relationship with Christ above all things, and it's not, um, it's not simply knowing information about him. Let me tell you a story about that. When, I was, uh, when Amanda and I went on our first date, she and I both agree, so this is not just me, both agree, very average first date. <laughs> I barely, and I mean barely, by the skin of my teeth, got over the bar to getting a second date. Right? I mean, I barely made it, and we're very thankful that I did. Okay, I'm very thankful that I did. You know, shocker, shocker, I talked too much on the first date. I know, right? You never would have guessed that. I'm like, you had your guard up. She's like, you talked too much. I was like, okay. By the end of the date, we both had a pretty good idea. Okay, I think that's a pretty neat person. I'd like to spend some more time with them. But I knew the first date I had not done real well. And so I said, I, I've got to do better on date number two. Men, you been there? Yes, you have. <laughs> Liars. I was sitting there like, nope, you're on your own, dude. I was good on date one. It was money in the bank. You were not. She showed you grace and gave you a second date. That's what happened. So, you know, so we get over the hump and I, I get the second date and uh, we meet in Waco, which is Amanda's hometown. Now, some of you have been going there on vacation because of HGTV. That's a terrible vacation destination. <laughs> Don't do that. Just, just go to Austin or San Antonio and stop through Waco. Stop through. Neat little town. Not worth a vacation destination. She would be so mad if she knew I said that to you right now. She's not in the room. So we meet in Waco. I'm in Austin. She's in Dallas. That's halfway in between. We meet there. And she goes, oh, it's my hometown. You want me to plan the date? And I said, no, no, I got it. And she's like, really? And I said, no, I got it. I got it. And so what I did is I knew, like, I want to know this. I want to know her. Like, I want to know more about her. Like, I, you know, I need to shut my mouth and listen more. And so what I did is I wrote up a bunch of cards. We met in the morning. We were going to have, like, a morning date. And so I wrote up a bunch of cards and the cards just had questions and the whole goal was to get to know her. So the first, it was like, take me to, in the house you grew up in, what was your favorite hiding place when you played hide and go seek? Take me to your favorite swing in your elementary school and tell me a story about playing on the playground in elementary school and who were your best friends? Take me to your best friend's house in high school and what did you guys do most when you were there? So we drove all over Waco, right? What's your favorite breakfast spot and your favorite thing on the menu? Now, at the end of the date, I had collected a lot of stories and a lot of information about Amanda. And I would argue this, that it would have been possible if you had said, if I had said, my life is centered on Amanda. I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm just saying that if I wanted to make that argument, I bet that I could have told you enough information about Amanda to make you believe me. I knew favorite color. I knew favorite perfume. I knew parents and background information and stories. I'd seen the junior high locker all right, I don't remember the number anymore, but I'd seen it, right? I knew all about the activities in high school. I mean, I, this is two dates in. I got a lot of information. If I wanted to convince you that my life was centered around Amanda, I think I had enough information to convince you that that was true. Would it, would it have been true? No, because your life isn't centered around something until relationship with that thing means most to you. And in two dates, let's be honest, it, it, we weren't there, Right? I think many of us are collectors of information about Jesus, and that's not the same as valuing your relationship with him most. That's not the same. We want you to value your relationship with Christ first and most, above all else. That's part one of what it means to be Christ-centered. Part two, like I said, 
as it means seeing and living out the implications of this relationship in every area of life. So here's the way that you can picture it. Picture your life like a river that's been poisoned, okay? Now, in Austin, uh, there's a chain of lakes, and that chain of lakes is made from the Colorado River being dammed up at multiple different points. So wherever it's dammed up, it creates a lake, and then ultimately it flows down. And so what the city will do is they will open and close the floodgates of those dams depending on the water levels at different areas of the river and where they need to be, right? And it makes sense. So those dams are really good things in terms of the health of the city, which has that river running right through the middle of it and which could flood the city if those dams didn't exist. And so those dams become really good things. But they are not really good things if you picture uh, those kinds of dams in your own life, if you picture it as the metaphor of a river. Imagine that your, your life is a poisoned river, poisoned by the poison of sin, and that Jesus, as the antidote, pours himself into the center of your life. Now the goal should be to get that antidote all the way down river right, with no dams stopping it from going forward to get the implications of the antidote to the poison in our lives all the way from the headwaters of the river down to the very end of the river, all the way to the delta where it enters the sea. That's the ambition that we're after in terms of getting the implications of Christ out into every area. Let me show you how Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 3. I told you to turn there. Let me read verses 2 through 11 to you. And see if this doesn't sound like what we're talking about when we talk about Christ-centeredness. Starting in verse 2, chapter 3. It says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. It's a really bold claim. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Do you hear the relational nature of that? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So you saw there in verse 8 and verse 10 that he's saying, I I want to know Christ. That's the center of this whole ambition. In fact, he says the ambition is not to be saved by grace through faith. I don't know if you caught it. He says in verse 9, leading into verse 10 and then verse 11, he says Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. In other words, that comes from my own goodness. Like doing enough works to get God to go, yep, you're good, right? I don't have a righteousness through that. Even though I said earlier, I'm blameless according to the law of God. That's what Paul just said about himself. He says, I don't have that kind of righteousness. I have the righteousness, the only true righteousness, that comes by grace through faith. Through faith in Christ, right? So that I may know him. So in that sentence... Which one is the ultimate end? 
It's knowing him, isn't it? The ultimate end is not salvation of my soul. The ultimate end is knowing him. The reason grace is so wonderful is because grace enables you to know Christ. Christ himself and relationship with him is the ambition, not just getting yourself into eternity. That's what Paul is saying. I want to know him. So we see from Paul here in verse eight and verse 10 that his chief ambition, the center is his relationship with Christ. But then there are at least four things that he points out that are viewed completely differently, that have been turned upside down in the way he views life. The implications of Christ at the center that get traced out and look at what they are. The first is that he says, so he says these four things, his understanding of salvation, his understanding of suffering, his understanding of his own identity and his understanding of the future have all been radically transformed by the reality of Christ at the center of his life, wanting to know Christ at the center. So he says about salvation, I was blameless according to the law, but I have realized that that does not save me. I used to think that made me right before God, but now with Christ at the center, with Christ's relationship with him at the center, I understand that salvation comes by grace through faith and that's what gives you access to know Jesus. So his view of salvation is radically altered. Then he says, my view of suffering has been radically changed. I don't know if you caught that. Often we think of suffering as purposeless and random and possibly maybe even punishment. And Paul says, I wanna know Christ. And what does he say next? the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. In other words, for Paul, suffering has gone from being something meaningless and purposeless to being something incredibly powerfully purposeful. He's saying suffering is no longer random. It's no longer just without purpose. Now it actually serves an important purpose that I would know Christ more when I suffer for the sake of righteousness because he suffered. And when I suffer for the sake of righteousness, I now know more of him. And if that, knowing him, is at the center, then suffering now, far from being random and purposeless, now has great meaning and significance. Doesn't mean I pursue suffering, but when it comes, it's radically altered his view of suffering. Then he says, my identity has changed. He gave a laundry list of his resume. Did you catch that? I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was from the tribe of Benjamin. That's like the most important tribe, right? I I had all these things. I was a Pharisee. I had zeal for the law. I persecuted the church. I mean, I was the poster child for the good Israelite. I mean, I was it. If anyone was ever righteous by being a good person, it was me. And he says, I count all that to be a loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. In other words, my identity has been completely turned on its head. The thing that I used to think gave me value and meaning no longer does. Now it gives me value and meaning in life is the fact that Jesus is king. And I just, I want to know him. He has called me to himself. Now I have an identity. His, His radically shaped view of an identity. And then the last one is his view of the future. I don't know if you caught at the very end when he says, Becoming like Christ in order to attain to the resurrection from among the dead. In other words, what he's saying is the future is completely different than what I thought it was. My view of the future has been radically altered by having Christ at the center of my life. And now downstream, I recognize 
that my view of what the future holds and how to think about the future. Like I don't have to be afraid of the future anymore because by grace, through faith, I have been given righteousness. And that righteousness guarantees that I will be resurrected from the dead when Jesus comes back. So the, just in this short little text, we see four things that are radically altered by Christ at the center of a life. So now, here's what we want to do. In our remaining time, I want to talk about Christ as the bread of life. I said we're going to look at those seven I am statements in John. So flip with me to John chapter 6, verse 35, and we'll continue with these I am statements next week. But we're just going to tackle this one today. I want to set you up with that definition of Christ-centeredness, help us think about what that looks like, and so we can really kind of dig in on these texts now in John. So John chapter 6, starting in verse 28 and looking to verse 35. Now, in this text, here's what's happening. Let me kind of set it up for you. Jesus, earlier in chapter 6 of John, has fed the 5,000 by multiplying the fish and loaves. Are you all familiar with that story? Then he departs and he goes across the Sea of Galilee. And when he does, the people start looking for him. So they, they come around the sea and they find him. <clears throat> when they find him, Jesus says, essentially, you're coming to find me because you ate bread that I provided for you. I mean, you, you think that I'm the guy who can multiply bread and that's a pretty good guy to want to be around. And so you want that. And so you've come and I'm going to tell you something different than what you expect about what true bread is. That's kind of what's happening here as we get to this section of chapter six. Now, chapter six, verse 28 through 35 says this. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Do you see they're still confused? And then in verse 35, Jesus said to them as plainly as he can, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So here's what's happening is they're coming to him and they're saying, okay, if you say that you are God's messenger, then you're gonna need to do a sign to show us. I mean, Moses provided manna and Jesus corrects them and says, Moses didn't provide the manna, God provided the manna. But they're pointing to that and they're saying that, that was like a sign that, that authenticated Moses as God's messenger. So we're gonna need you to give us a sign. Now, what's the irony of that? What had Jesus just done? He had just fed 5,000 people from a few loaves of bread. Right, so that might be a good indicator that this person knows what they're talking about. I say, we're gonna need a sign. And Jesus says, I am the sign. You're talking about manna and I'm telling you, I am true bread. You're talking about the sign that God did to authenticate Moses by saying, I'm gonna provide for you in the wilderness. Don't worry, here's your manna. And Jesus is saying, I'm better than the manna. I am the one who is true bread. Now, he uses that idea of bread, obviously, to relate back to the manna and to relate back to the feeding of the 5,000 to show them, look, if you're coming and showing up because you want physical bread, I'm gonna tell you that I, I have something better to give you than physical bread. 
And by the way, I'm better than the manna. I'm better than the, the bread with which I fed the 5,000. I am the true bread that has come down from heaven. So what is Jesus saying when he says, I am the bread of life? He is saying, I am the thing that is able to satisfy your deepest longings. The things you long for, that you want fulfilled and satisfied, I am able to fulfill those like no one else. Let's just ponder that for a moment. Look at, look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Gang, do we have that on the slides? I think we do, yeah? Great. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And this is just a, such a common thing that we are, we're just people who long. We have desires and longings that need to be satisfied. Listen to how the author of Ecclesiastes talks about it, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great. And surpass all who were before me in Jerusalem. All my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. From my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done. And the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. How depressing is that? Right? Do you get what, what Solomon is saying? He's saying, look, I, I exercised power over people. I built mighty works. I had possessions like no one's ever had possessions. My coffers were full of money. I did not withhold a single pleasure from myself. If I wanted pleasure in women, I sought after it. If I wanted pleasure in food, I went for it. And after all of that pleasure seeking, what's his conclusion? Vanity. It was like trying to catch the wind. I couldn't satisfy myself. Friends, it is the common experience of every human person that we long to find satisfaction. We long for contentment and we will look for it anywhere we think it may be found. What Jesus is saying when he says, I'm the bread of life, is he's saying, I'm the only one that can truly satisfy you the way you want to be satisfied. And let's just think for a moment about some of the ways we seek satisfaction. Let's look at a couple practical ones, then let's look at a religious one, okay? The first one, the practical one, is often, just like Solomon, we try and satisfy ourselves with money and possessions. I mean, we'll go after them and we'll think, if I just have enough, I'll be secure, I'll be safe, I'll, I'll have power because I'll have money to buy what I need and get people to do what I want and, there's no end of seeking satisfaction in money and possessions. And like Solomon, if you've encountered anyone who's done that for any amount of time, I mean, I don't know how many stories we have to hear about the person who climbed the ladder, got to the top, and then said, is this all there is? 
right? Found it to be empty and void, just like Solomon did. Friends, it happens again and again and again and again. And yet we think when I climb that ladder, it will be different. When I get the money and the possessions, then it will be different. Do you know why money and possessions can't create the satisfaction that your soul craves, that your inner person craves? The reason is because you can't take them with you after you die. They are temporary. So even if you find some satisfaction for a little while, ultimately the person who thinks with any depth about life recognizes that nothing, like, that they are vanity because they're not gonna do anything to prevent you from dying and anything on the other side of that death. And so they just don't satisfy. They just don't do it. So, okay, so, so those things don't satisfy. But maybe, maybe, there's, maybe there's like a religious answer to it, right? Maybe there's, maybe like some of these Eastern religions would have an, an answer. Well, if you study Buddhism, here's the answer Buddhism gives to you as to how to ultimately be satisfied in life. And it's kind of an ironic one. The ultimate way to be satisfied in life is to not want anything. That is the, that's the short version of the teaching of Buddhism. If you can let go of all your desire, all your longings, then they're, they're the source of your suffering. The reason you struggle is because you want stuff. And if you stop wanting stuff, if you can detach from wanting stuff, then you will reach peace and you will find yourself satisfied. Well, I don't know about you, but that sounds like impossible to me to, to just detach. Plus, it brings a hollowness to life if I'm supposed to detach from the people that I love most, really? Like, I shouldn't want them to love me in return because that's only gonna cause suffering. I gotta not desire that people I love would love me back. Right? I gotta not long for things in this life. So here's the world's view is over-attachment to things that can't satisfy. And the sort of Eastern philosophical answer, which is prevalent in our day and age, is just complete detachment from things and that will satisfy you. But here's the, bril the brilliance and the beauty of Jesus when he says, I am the bread of life. He says, when you find your satisfaction in me, the reason I can satisfy like nothing else can satisfy is because when I satisfy you, I don't call you to detach from all the things that you love. I rightly order your love for them underneath love for me. And I actually enable you to love them truly for the first time. If you think you've loved a person, you haven't loved them rightly and truly until you've loved them under and for the sake of Christ. That's when you really love. And that's when your love for even material possessions and wealth and your home and all the things that God brings into your life. The key is not detachment from those things. The key is to be singularly and first attached to Jesus and then let him align your love for all those other things underneath love for him. And all of a sudden, you will love them in a way that is right and true and good. You can love your home and love your family and love your spouse. You should. Because all those things can be harnessed for the knowing of Christ. And when they are harnessed towards that end, they become immensely valuable. And you truly love them for the first time. That's the brilliance of finding satisfaction in Jesus. And he offers an ability to be satisfied. Now, when he uses that illustration of I am the bread of life, remember, what does he do at the Last Supper? He breaks the bread. So he is emblematically saying, where do you look to find satisfaction in me? When I say I'm the bread of life, what I'm saying is look to my broken body. 
Look to my sacrifice on your behalf. If you want to know how to stoke affection for me and find satisfaction in me, then look to me as your bread, my body on the cross, broken for you. Bread does not satisfy until it is broken and taken in. And Jesus has been broken so that he might be our bread and satisfy our deepest longings. Longings for meaning beyond the grave and longings for making sense of all our other loves and affections rightly ordered underneath knowing him. That's what it means when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I can satisfy you like nothing else can satisfy you. Now we're gonna look at those next six I am statements next week. We've done the heavy lifting of kind of framing ourselves uh, for, for next week. And now next week what I wanna do is we're gonna talk about what it means when Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And I am the true vine. Let me encourage you this week to be in the book of John, to spend a little time and just make your way through and see what Jesus is saying and read the context of those statements. Ponder them. Come next week ready to investigate them together. Let's pray together if you would. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for the time we've had in your word. We do pray that you would cause us to place our relationship with you at the center of all that we are and all that we do. We need you. We thank you that you are bread. Lord, as your people go now, I pray that you would send them in the power of your spirit. Give them an experience of this nearness of your spirit and a work of your spirit this week that forever changes their perspective and reshapes them. Send them out in the power of people who are satisfied in you, the bread, that they might offer that bread to others. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. My friends, we love you. You're dismissed. Have a wonderful Sunday. We'll see you next week.